0: Days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah now they entered the land of Moab and remained there then Elimelech Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Mallon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. And so as she looks around, wondering where her new normal is going to be and how things are going to move forward from this point of devastation in her life. She decides, I know what I'll do. I'll go back home to Bethlehem. And so she asked her two daughters-in-law to remain there in their homeland, and she told them, you need to stay here and find yourselves new husbands and remarry, raise children, and, and just be back home with you in your mother's houses and, and just stay here, and I'm going to go back home to Bethlehem. But they both insisted on going with Naomi, and eventually... She talked them out of it, or at least one of them, Orpah, remained, but the other one returned with Naomi. And in that section of Scripture in the book of Ruth, we read that familiar passage that used to be found in weddings a lot where Ruth is saying to her mother-in-law, Naomi, entreat me not to leave thee from following after thee, and I'll go with you, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, and so forth. So as they traveled back to Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi approached the little village and they saw the women outside the village and some of the people who had not ever left Bethlehem. And she heard them talking out loud and they said, Who who is is that Naomi? Is that Naomi? How can this be Naomi? And she said, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Can you just feel her devastation as she comes home after all these years and all this loss and devastation and sorrow and heartache and now she doesn't even look like herself and she's bitter? Mara means bitter. Naomi means pleasant. So here was a bitter woman laying the cause of it all at the feet of God. God has dealt bitterly with me. He has emptied me out. Often our bitterness is directed toward God. And can't we just see Naomi in this situation in her life, bitter and speaking about how life isn't fair? And probably time wasn't the only contributor to the inability of the the townsfolk to recognize Naomi. It was likely the bitterness in her heart and in her soul that was working against her, dragging her down, that poisoned her so that she was not at all the person they once knew, Naomi the pleasant, the beautiful, the kind person. What about us? Surprisingly, bitterness is, is a, a great sin among Christians in this, in this day and time. It's a great common problem, and yet it's one of the most deadly because it gets in our shoes and eats us from the bottom up. It gets in our heart and eats us from the inside out. It just destroys us if we allow it to. Bitterness sometimes is based on delusions, and if people are thinking under a delusion, and you can show them that they're not thinking clearly, that they're thinking irrationally, and there's no basis for all this hatred and bitterness and and venom inside of them, then maybe they'll work their way out of it. But what about reality like this that's based on, on, or bitterness that's based on reality like this? Who would say to Naomi, Naomi, shame on you for being bitter? I mean, all you've been through is the death of your husband. And moving away from your homeland and your hometown and suffering great financial loss and then the death of your two sons, shame on you for being bitter. Would we say that? She had been through a lot and when someone cries out, life is not fair and what they're saying is based on reality. When state after state joins the no-fault divorce clause situation where somebody can just take off and run away and just up and leave and change everything around them, all kinds of things happen around us and so how... Do we say to them moral platitudes like, well, life is fair and this is what you get, just deal with it? And that's not the answer. The question we raise sometimes is where is it written that life is fair, in the Bible or any place else, that life is fair? And so what we have is a challenge on our hands to deal with bitterness, to avoid it if possible and get rid of it if it comes to us. When King Hezekiah was informed by the prophet in Isaiah 38 that he must set his house in order because he was going to die and not live, We read there in chapter 38 of Isaiah, verse 3 and verse 5, that Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he wept bitterly. And why not? It's not fair in the middle of your life, in the midst of your days, in the prime of life, to be told you're about to die and now everything has to be adjusted. You know, it's difficult to even pick a place to be buried And sometimes I think about, well, there will never be a dorm named after me. There will never be a town or a street named after me. If I'm fortunate to get my house in order, then there will be a nice tombstone named after me that I bought myself. And I don't even know where I want that tombstone to be. Logan County, Pope County, Pulaski County. I don't even want to go there, but I'm going to have to. That's just how life works. It's not fair for a man in his prime to receive the death sentence. And no wonder then he wept bitterly. And then in verse 3, he recounts to God how good of a guy he is. It's as though he was saying, what do you mean kill me? I mean, what do you mean I'm going to die? I'm a good guy. I'm one of your servants. I've been, I've been serving you all of my life. And look at all the good I've done. And that's why bitterness is so common and so deadly. Because sometimes our bitterness is based on reality. On things that have happened to us or because of us, or because of the sinful wrong choices of others, or just the happenstance of life. And sometimes we have to ask the question, why did my loved one get so sick and stay sick for so long and suffer for so long? Or why did I have to go through this long goodbye? Why do I have to see my loved one not even know who I am and not recognize our own grandkids? Why is that? Why did my elderly parent linger? Or why did my spouse die so suddenly? Just gone, suddenly. Why do those other church members act so worldly? And why does the church seem to not do anything about it, to stop it or fix it or change it or get, it, get them back? Why aren't things better for me or the, or the church or the world or our country or whatever? Sometimes life is unfair, and there's an unfairness about life that is sometimes observable because we can look around and see people who don't have the measure of faith we think we have, and they're doing okay. They seem to not be suffering the way we suffer. They seem to not be hurting and having all this void in their life and looking for their new normal all the time. They got it together. And sometimes those who do not even believe in God seem to be better off than Christians. And sometimes we can actually see people in the world acting better and living better and treating other people better and treating their neighbors better than we do ourselves. And we know better. We know how to do it. It's wrong, by the way, to believe this so-called gospel of prosperity where someone gets on TV and preaches or writes a book that teaches give your life to God and he'll reward you financially for it. Give your life to Jesus and he'll make all your problems go away. In Psalm 73, we run into a man named Asaph. And he says there in verse 3, I was envious at the foolish. I looked around and I saw people who were corrupt, worldly, wicked, ungodly people. And they seemed to die peacefully. They seem to have it all worked out. And so in verse 13 he says, And what am I doing living this way? I have cleansed my heart in vain. What good does it do for me to try to be a Christian and live right and do right and believe right and worship right and then these people don't even have to suffer? And look what I'm going through. How does that work? And so then in verse 21, Thus was my heart grieved. Or another version says, When my soul was embittered. When my soul was embittered. We stumble over this sometimes when we start comparing ourselves to other people in the world and we start seeing the difference and subtracting the difference. Asaph directed his bitterness toward God. And we have to overcome bitterness because it works on the one who is bitter. This is really interesting. Bitterness is like it's it's no good. It doesn't fix anything. It rarely changes anything except the person who has the bitterness in their heart. And it's a lot like... When you get hurt at church or hurt in your family or hurt among friends or at work or someplace, it's like taking, drinking poison and hoping they die. Is that what happens sometimes in suicide? You know, people are so desperate when they get to that point. It's hard to even try to figure out what's going on and and how to hold them accountable. Accountable for what? And are they even in their right mind? But I wonder sometimes if people think, I'll do this and hurt you so bad. And so bitterness is like taking poison in your own bosom, fire in your own bosom. And hoping the other person dies. Bitterness changes a Naomi into a Mara. We speak rashly sometimes when we're bitter. And then that causes other problems. Bitterness can destroy relationships. And people who are bone deep bitter about something can hardly talk about anything else. It's all, the, the conversation always goes to that. And they bring it up. And then if you want to have a relationship with them and sustain it, then you have to share in their bitterness or the relationship will be over. If you don't get down on their level and wallow in it with them, and yeah, I know what you're talking about, and join in and just add more venom to the poison, then it's just not going to work because you're on a different level. So if you maintain that relationship, you must absorb into your life the same poison. And yet in the Proverbs, we're taught from the wisdom literature, a father tells his son in wisdom, with a wrathful man thou shalt not go lest thou learn his ways and get a snare unto thy soul. He's saying there, don't hang around with the wrong crowd. And when you're miserable, don't look for misery that loves company and find other people more miserable and you just wallow in your misery together, but rather, don't do it. Stay away from the wrathful man or the egotistical man or whatever it may be. So bitterness can be very deadly and it can be something that destroys relationships, but it can also bring spiritual death. There's a tendency when we're bitter to leave the church. And sometimes it's not just a matter of going to church across town, some other place, but going back to the world. Asaph says in Psalm 73 and verse 1, Surely God is good. But this style of writing shows uh, shows something like this. He's saying, This is my conclusion. I figured out now that God is good and he's good to Israel. But that's not what I always thought because I had some struggles to go through and I had some reframing to do. And so he says, Let me show you how I worked it out. So he starts off with, this is my conclusion. Uh, He was oriented at first, and then he became a little bit disoriented, and then he's reoriented. But just look at the first nine verses of Psalm 73. He starts off, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs at their death, but their strength is firm They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men, therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with with abundance, they're fat and sassy. I have more than they have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. And so he goes on elaborating there on what kind of ragged lifestyles they live, and yet they seem to be getting along just fine. And so at least, though, in verse 15, we read that he kept his mouth shut about it. There's a great key here to church life and to life in general, and that is to be very careful in what poison you spread around and share with others, even when your your heart is broken. Now, I realize sometimes you need a good friend that you can just let go of everything. (laughs) You thought I was going to say puke, didn't you? Anyway, that you can just... Let it all out and they'll take it. And they'll listen and they won't be judgmental. And they won't hurt you back or anything like that. You can just be free and be safe and you have a place to just let go. And that's good. But then be careful as we we spew and as we speak. Verse uh, 15 of Psalm 73, he said, But I said to myself, if I speak thus, I will offend the children of this generation. That is, he says, if I go around broadcasting how miserable I am and what's wrong with everybody else and what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with the church and what's wrong with my family and so on, when I spew that out, then I may offend someone and drag them down and hurt them and break their heart. And then, and we may have lived through this, some of us have seen this, where I get fixed, I get straightened out, I change my mind and get over it, and they're still broken and they're unreachable. And they say to me, you were right the first time. Everything is rotten. And so now look what I've done. I have caused someone else to be stumbling and hurt. Asaph says that it never really was totally resolved in his own mind. Verse 16, he says, "Until he said, I was thinking this until I came into the sanctuary of the Lord, and I considered their end." In other words, when I got my face and nose back into the book, when I got back into worship services, when I stayed close to the, to the righteous people, when I let God hold me by my right hand, when I stayed close by, I began to realize how the outcome of everything is going to be. There's a great day coming and God will judge and He'll handle all this then, not now. And so I don't have to handle it right now. And so Christians ought to enjoy being a Christian and serving the Lord. But Christians ought to keep serving even when it's not any fun. That's a challenge. To continue to serve in the church even when our heart is heavy because it keeps us there. As verse 23 says, as Chad read a moment ago, or Mike read a moment ago, that um, thou hast holden me in thy right hand. So life is not fair many times, but the difference is as Christians, even in the unfairness, we have God. Hezekiah, looking back later on his life, after he got the 15 years added to his life, he said, when I had great bitterness, it was for my welfare. He was able to reframe and look and say, you know, that got my attention and it made me focus on things involving eternity. The psalmist said on one occasion, it was good that I have been afflicted, for I learned thy statutes. In 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 12, we read about David's son Absalom. Absalom now is usurping the throne and he's run his daddy out of town. He's run David out of town and David is now a refugee from his own throne and Shimei comes out cursing Cursing David and saying, yeah, you worthless man. You, you, you reigned on the throne of, of Saul. You, you king of blood. <laughs> you bloody person. You worthless person. And now Absalom is going to rule in your place and he's running you out of town. And he throws rocks at David. And he throws dirt in the air. He's just showing out and acting up and cursing. And one of David's men says, why should this dead dog curse Israel and curse my Lord? You want me to kill him? Let me go take off his head. Exactly what he wanted to do. Let me go take off his head. Why should this happen? And David's response was, let him curse me. Maybe God has sent him to curse me. This suggests that maybe we shouldn't try to make up for or get even for every wrong that we suffer, but to look at the big picture of life, that vengeance belongs to God and he will repay. You look back at the story of Ruth. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, things seemingly turned completely around And are better than ever before in in, in some ways. And that's kind of what happened with, with Job and his testing. But Ruth now at the end of the book has become the wife of Boaz. And a phrase in there that we just almost read over without notice is one of those big atomic powerful phrases in the scripture. It has to do with God's providence and God ruling behind the scenes. It's kind of like a, 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 a stage play. And we know behind the curtain when the, when the intermission comes or the end of Act 1 comes and they close the curtains and there's all this hustle and bustle behind there and the furniture's being moved and costumes are being changed and people are shuffling around and you're thinking, something's happening, but I don't know what. And when the curtain opens again, it's a different scene and you didn't know what was coming, but there it is now and you go into Act 2. And so in her life, in the, in the life of Naomi and Ruth, and in the storyline of the history of Israel, We have these things happening, and now we read that she happened to glean in the field belonging to Boaz. She happened to glean in the field belonging to Boaz, a near kinsman, who's going to be able to redeem the the right of the firstborn and the lever at marriage and all that and, and set up the family and keep the inheritance in the family and all that. And so she happened to glean in the field belonging to Boaz. No doubt God was somewhere rearranging the furniture, not miraculously, but working. Ruth becomes pregnant and the women say to Naomi or Naomi, listen uh, as we read. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today and may his name become famous in Israel and may he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap, and, he became, and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, we pick up a thread here when we see the name David, and we see some descendants of David. And we see people like Solomon and others in the, in the, the seed line and in the storyline. It's an important thing. This is something to do with the providence of God. Look in verse 18. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Remember Rahab? Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Now, Matthew's list is the same bunch of names, only a lot longer and a more fuller genealogy. And the last name on the list is Jesus Christ. So now here we have Ruth. I'll go with you, and and your people will be my people. Let me go with you. She goes back to Bethlehem, and she happens, just happens to glean in the field belonging to Boaz. Boaz marries her. They have children. And that becomes the seed line of Christ. How can we miss seeing the providence of God in all of this? And how can we not see how somehow in all the bitterness of life that nothing can separate us from the love of God, height nor depth, any created thing, principalities, power, none of that stuff, if God is for us, who can be against us, Romans say. And so all things do work together for good. And can we not say with David, as he explains a little bit further about Shimei cursing him, he says it may be, it may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction and that the Lord will repay me good for this cursing of me today. And look at that reframing. Look as he looks at how things are unfolding. And he says, okay, let him, let him cuss. Let him throw rocks. Let him, maybe God sent him to curse me. And maybe, maybe on top of all this, God will repay me good for all this evil that has happened. So Joseph is 17 years old. He starts having dreams And his brothers are jealous, and they hate him for it. And they see him coming one day down in the land of Dothan, in the area of Dothan. And they see him, and they conspire against him to kill him. And Reuben speaks up and says, Don't kill him. He's not good to anybody if he's dead. Not us or not anybody. Let's put him in this pit over here. And he thought he would come back and save him later. And we're told there that they threw him in this pit. Here he is, 17 years old, and his brothers sat down to eat their lunch. How do you swallow a tuna fish sandwich? with your little brother in a hole in the ground saying, oh, come on, guys, let me out. What are you doing? Now, it's been long enough. It's not funny anymore. Now, let me out. And they're hearing him cry and, and wanting relief and wanting release, and they just leave him there, and he's sold into slavery. And you know the story of Joseph as he goes down into Egypt, and then he gets put in prison over lies that were told about him. By Potiphar's wife, and he rises to power till he's second only to Pharaoh. And then his brothers come down there because the famine again comes and spreads over the land, and they don't have any grain. So Jacob sends them down there, and they they come down to buy grain. And Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And so now he's going to test their hearts to see what they're all about, and he starts giving them their tests, and sends for his younger brother and and all that. But as as it unfolds, and finally they realize that that they're caught. They realize that Joseph knows who they are and they realize who Joseph is and they're panicking. What have we done? And now it's all come back to roost. It's, it, we're caught. He's gonna. He can have us killed just like that. And so they're worried about it. And finally, in the last analysis of it, over in chapter 50, the end of the book in verse 20, after the death of their father and all of them have been blessed and all these things have been said, he reassures his brothers once again and he says, now don't don't worry, guys. It's going to be all right. You meant this... To me, you meant this as evil, but God meant it as good so that I could preserve life and there would be this lineage would carry on. It's all according to plan. And so here was a man reframing it all. Yes, it looked like it was evil, but it turned out because all things work together for good and God has a plan behind the curtain, God meant it for good. Bitterness is a deadly problem, both physically and spiritually, And we have to work to avoid it or to get rid of it. The church is a sanctuary, just like Asa found when I came into the sanctuary of the Lord. When I stay with God's people, I can reframe this and I'll find hope and courage and support. Would you bow with me for a prayer? Father, we thank you for the hope we have in Jesus and that if you are for us, nothing can effectively be against us, against our will and against our choosing. So we pray, Father, that you'll help us to abide in hope and in great joy, give ourselves permission someday to die happy, that we can know that we have served you and remained faithful to you and close to you all the days of our life, so much as is within us that we've lived peaceably with all men. And, Father, we just pray that any of us who have bitterness in our hearts will learn to reframe this and, re, and, and get over it and, and get away from it and to refresh ourselves. And we, we pray, Father, for restoration and for forgiveness when we're this way. And, Father, we just know that all the hope that there is is in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you'll help us to abide in him faithfully and have all this hope and no reason for any root of bitterness, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Exodus, the 15th chapter, as the people of God were coming out of of Egypt and they were heading toward the Promised Land, they came to a place called Marah, where the water was bitter and they couldn't drink it. Marah. Whatever was wrong with the water, it wasn't fit to drink. So the people murmured against Moses, and they said, What are we going to drink? And then Moses cried out to God, the pattern that we see often again. They cried out to him. He cries out to God. God, what are we going to do? And the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw the tree in the water. The water became sweet, and the people drank. Everything was okay at that point. Isn't it it interesting that in that case in the midst of the people of God, with God at the helm and God leading them with the fiery, cloudy pillar, showing them the way to the promised land, that the answer to the bitterness of life right then was a tree. And to this very day, the answer to the bitterness of life is the tree of Calvary, the cross. And on there, all the prices are paid, all the accounts are settled, and everything is worked out in God's favor. And in our favor, if we believe in Jesus and accept his gift, accept his sacrifice. It may be that today you have been thinking about obeying the Lord and putting him on in baptism and having your sins washed away and blotted out. And if you've been thinking that and are ready to obey the gospel today, everything's ready, and we're, we're going to sing a song about coming as, just as you are. How else can you come? <laughs> but just as you are, and God will receive you if you're willing to repent of your sins, confess your faith in Christ, and obey the gospel. For your salvation and it may be a, as a christian you need to be restored to your first love and ask for forgiveness and we can do that this morning and pray for you if you'll let us know that as we stand together and as we sing